We are in 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Please turn there and buckle your seatbelt because we're going to read through this and um, you'll see why it's, it's an intense scripture. Let's, let's pray before we, before we get into it. Lord, would you please guide us through this scripture and would you speak to us through it? Would you, um, would you give me the right mind and right spirit that you want to get this point across? Would you give me the right attitude and the right um, emphasis and the right places and all of that so that I can share the, the point behind this passage? Lord, I ask that you would um, speak right to our hearts, that you'd bridge the gap from the ancient world to our world, that we can understand what you would have for us today. Thank you that your word is living and active. So Lord, we're here to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, follow along with me. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself sick because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, or Shemiah, David's brother. So this would also be Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, well, <clears throat> lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see, to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Verse seven. And David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. And baked the cakes and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I might eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come Lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And he being stronger than her, he violated her and he lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out. In the Hebrew, it's much more blunt. It says, put this thing out from me, out of my presence, and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robes that she wore. And she laid her, head on the, uh, uh, her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. 
And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now, hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother, do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. And when David, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But that's about it. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And after two full, full years, Absalom had she, uh, sheep shearers at, at Baal-Hazar, which, he had, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we become a burden to you. But he pressed him. He would not go but, uh, until he gave his blessing. And then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servant, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then I want you to kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So... The servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. This is verse 30 now. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left, of them is left. Then the king arose and he tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments but Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind, behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. Verse 36. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to, to, to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Jeshur. And David mourned his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is a tragic uh, filthy story. It's one that, I mean, I feel like we need to, all, we, we need to take a shower after going through this. It's, it's, it deals, with, and quite frankly, this story is about the devastating fallout of sin. Uh, as I've been um, sitting in this for the past two weeks, my heart almost involuntarily says like a warning sign, don't mess with sin. It is, it's a problem. And this, where this sin originates, this is very much a part of David's sin that we've been dealing with for the past two chapters. In chapter 11, things could not have been going better for David and for Israel. David had become king. He had unified the nation. He'd established a capital city for Israel. He had brought the Ark of the Covenant, the manifest presence of God, back into the midst of the people of Israel, back into their spiritual life and at the center of their national life. And because of that, God was blessing David. He was blessing Israel um, in spades. 
David was systematically conquering all of Israel's enemies and rivals. They were quickly becoming a rising dominant national power in the land. They, were, they had gone from kind of a nomadic new people struggling to put roots down, struggling to be recognized as prominent, to under David's leadership clearly becoming prominent and now conquering more and more territory. But then, at the height of all this success and blessing, and not just blessing politically and nationally and economically, but blessing from God, God had made a covenant with David in chapter 7, a beautiful covenant, a beautiful promise of all the blessings that God was going to give to David and his family. But then, in the midst of this, at the height of all this success and blessing, David does something in an act of passion and self-sabotage that we think is unthinkable. We watch in horror as he just, in an act of contempt against God, a slap back in his face, takes something that God has said is forbidden to him, and as the result, we have the story in front of us. David became infatuated with a married woman, the wife, not just any married woman, but the wife of someone he knew, one of his most heroic and valiant warriors, one that had saved David's own life uh, in times past. David used his power to investigate her and then to send for her, and then it uses the same Hebrew word, he took her. He took what was not his and from this escapade, she became pregnant, and a, this scandal that led to David's executing her husband, murdering her husband, not executing publicly, secretly murdering her under this cover-up story. And in the wake of Uriah, her husband's death, David heroically assumed responsibility for his wife, for Bathsheba, brought her into his own house, looked like the hero, I'll take care of our war hero's widowed bride, I'll raise her son as my own. And you know what? It seemed that David got away with it. It seemed like the perfect cover-up. It seemed like he was out of the woods, like he was getting away, with, except for the last verse. The last verse of chapter 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. God knew. And in the next chapter, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David, and here's what he said. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. I only want to bless you. That's all I want to do. That's my heart. And look at this. It's almost a cry from God's heart. Verse 9 of chapter 12. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, here's the fallout. Out of your own household, I will bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, David, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. And to this, you remember David's response. David came clean, and he confessed, and he said, I I have sinned against the Lord. And immediately, right away, Nathan responds by saying, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're forgiven. You will not die. Such, and we marveled when we were here, and rightfully so, such grace given to such, um, such rebellious sin, such a horrendous act, multiple acts of, on a national scale, 
such rebellion, and we marveled at the grace of God. I mean, the bigger the sin just highlights the grandness of God's grace. The darker the night highlights the the beauty of the sunrise. It just was incredible. And Romans chapter 5 says that where sin abounded, God's grace abounds all the more. It's this incredible thing. And this has got to give us hope for ourselves. I mean, I know all of us are sinners, and I know all of us are capable of this same type of sin. Uh, The doctrine of sin is that we all don't lack any potential to do the same kinds of things that David did. We all have in us the seeds that if they're properly watered and fertilized, they can grow. We can all end up like David and maybe even do worse. And yet... I don't know anyone in this room who's actually committed these things like David. That several of you, several other people come to me wondering on a regular basis, does God still love me? Has God still forgiven me? And I would say, gosh, David gives us hope. I don't know anybody in here that has murdered the spouse of someone that you want to be with. I mean, you know, if, if God can forgive David so quickly, then surely God's love is for you and for me, and we take great comfort from that. But, so much of the time, we end it there. And as amazing as the grace of God is, unfortunately, this story, like life, is much more complicated than that. Though forgiven and made right before God, the consequences and fallout of this sin has irrevocably set in to rot David and his family from the inside out. He will never be the same. You know, you you notice his reaction to this sin in his own household was basically to get mad, but then to do nothing. And this really marks, going forward, we'll see the same kind of attitude in his leadership. He is, David is a, a fangless lion, Someone who roars and gets mad but has no power. He's impotent in his power. He no longer holds the respect of his family. What's he going to say to Amnon without being called a big hypocrite? You know, this is like the kind of family where the kids roll their eyes at dad after he tells them something that is true. But he's lost, his, he's lost his moral authority. He's lost his leadership at this point. And after sitting in this for a few weeks, like I said, the impression with this is, man, don't take sin lightly. It's no joke. It's a problem. In fact, it is the problem of the cosmos for a reason. It disintegrates families It disintegrates relationships. The fabric of society itself is breaking down because of compounded hurt and sin that manifests itself like a bomb going off. Everyone gets shrapneled by by this thing. And it'd be one thing, wouldn't it, if it just affected us. In an individualistic culture, that's what we think. I mean, if there is a sin in our culture, it is do what you want unless it hurts somebody else. Then you get in trouble in our culture. No one should tell you what to do with yourself. No one should be able to tell you what to do morally with your body or with your choices. As long as it's just about you, you can hurt yourself all you want. But the moment you start hurting other people, that's when our culture says, now that's where it's too much. That is a foreign concept an alien concept in the Bible. All sin affects everyone. It is a societal problem and it breaks, it breaks us all down. The most insidious effect of sin is its erosion of society starting with the people we love the most. As a pastor, man, If I could show you on the screen just snapshots of the tears that I have seen. Gosh, it hurts. It hurts me even to think about it. 
It's been years and years and years and years of me dealing with fallout after fallout with folks, walking through this with folks. Of someone who thought, well, I can sin and I'll just 1 John 1, 9 it. I'll confess and he'll forgive me and that'll be that. Yeah, it's bad, but we'll get through it. Don't mess with sin. It's a serious, I mean, it's, it, I, I, I can't even, I wish there was a word that could make it not so understated. So instead, the Bible shows us with a story. A story. We're talking about what the Bible calls generational sin, which is just simply the phenomenon that we've all come to understand, that we are phenomenally shaped by our past, by our families, by the people that we've interacted with. We are profoundly shaped by our parents, and we are profoundly shaping our children. This is not so much of a mystical mystery anymore. You know, if, you, if anybody in here goes to therapy, like I do, it's a safe place, it's what we do, and one of the things that we talk about is, what was your relationship with, with your dad? What, what was your relationship like with your dad? What was your relationship like with your mom? Where were you at in the birth order? What was it like? Was there any traumatic moments that came into your life? Did any of them abuse you? Were, did you abuse anybody? All, we explore those things. Why do we deal so much with the past? Because the past is a great help. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's a great clue into understanding where we are currently. Our past points us and sets a course for the future. This is what the Bible would call generational sin. This is a place where the Bible and psychology are in line with each other here. The narratives that we live by, the stories that we tell ourselves to make sense of this crazy world, the ways that we, that we look at reality to make sense, to get us through, they have a profound effect on the people around us, especially our children. They are like conduits of the energy that we exude Spoken and unspoken. And I hope you can see how complex this is. Here we have three different case studies before us, three of David's children, each dramatically shaped by their father's sins in three very different ways. It's not so simple. It's not as simple as saying, hey, you better not be angry because your kid might end up being angry. Well, maybe, but there's other ways that your, that your behaviors can fall out to your children. This shows all of it. We've got Amnon. I call him the chip off the old block, Amnon. We have Tamar, the innocent victim. We have Absalom, the angry revolutionary, each affected by David's sin in various ways. Let's take them all in turn. Amnon was more likely the heir to the throne. And as such, Amnon was... Um, the most in tune with his father. He got his idea of what it meant to be king by watching his dad. And no doubt, he was infatuated by his dad's position, by his dad's popularity, by his dad's great exploits. There was a great amount of admiration. David was like the star in Israel. He was the most famous person, and he was Amnon's dad, and he was heading to be like David. He was going to sit on that throne someday. And with this admiration came a lot of justification. He also began to admire David's entitlement. David's sense of um, being, accept, being an exception to the rule. He became an indulgent child, Amnon did. And just like dad, he ended, up, he ended up taking what he wanted, even if it was forbidden to him. There's a few things I want to point out here. He learned that he could take whatever he wanted from David, first of all. There were no limits for him. He was the exception to the rule. In chapter 11, as I already pointed out, we read that David saw a forbidden woman and then took her. We can... We can actually trace this pattern of seeing and taking 
back to the original sin in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good to make someone wise, they then took. Later, the sons of God, these spiritual um, authoritative creatures, whatever they are, some people think fallen angels, whatever they are, these sons of God, they saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took. Lot, when he looks to the left and he looks to the right and he saw that Sodom and Gomorrah was good, he took it for himself. And on and on and on this pattern goes to David where he sees this woman on the, ex- the rooftop and he takes her. And now, here's Amnon who sees another forbidden woman, not because she's someone else's wife, but because she's his sister. This is David 2.0. There's no limits. If David can have, if my dad can have whatever he wants and be the exception to the rule and get away with it, look, he was forgiven. He's still kinging. If he can do it, there's no consequences for me either. And he takes. He learned from his father also how to manipulate. Did you notice the psychological justification in Amnon's story? Look at, let me read this first part of the story again. Look at, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Come to find out it's more, it's obviously more lust than it is love. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to do anything uh, to her. But Amnon had a friend, and look, he said, uh, and the friend said, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will, um, Will you not tell me? Now look how Amnon phrases this. Look at the story he's telling himself. Look at the narrative that's in his heart to make himself feel better. Um, This is verse four. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Did you notice the psychological, he removes himself from actually being her brother in his mind psychologically to make his lust justified, to make himself feel better. But when it comes time to manipulate David, his father, look how quick it changes. Look down. He says in verse six, please, he says to David, please let my sister Tamar come and make me food. What's he doing? He's throwing David off the trail. He's leaving no doubt to David that he has nothing but good relationships with his sister. It's a healthy thing. I just want her to come and and nurse me back to health. It's It's a patriarchal society. You can command women to do this. Have Tamar, my sister, come and nurse me back to health. But she's just my sister. What would David have thought? I wonder if there would have been a flag in David's conscience if he would have said, hey, have Absalom's sister Tamar come. Would David, would a dad have gone, that's a weird way that you put that. Why would he put it like that? The manipulation starts in the mind. It starts in the narratives that we tell ourselves. David had told himself, hey, uh, presumably, David had told himself, nothing should be kept from me. And now Amnon is following in his footsteps. He's a chip off the old block. He's doing the same thing and telling himself a different story to make it possible. He learned from his father how to manipulate and to get what he wanted. Just as David used, this is so sinister, just as David used Joab to kill and hurt innocent Uriah, so Amnon uses David now to lure Tamar into his own house. He manipulated David by acting like he was sick and getting David to command Tamar to go. Just think of the manipulative hack here. Amnon used the most safe person in her world. This is where this is so uh, psychologically traumatizing to her, no doubt. He used the most safe person in her world, not just the king, but her father, to send for her with his authority, to put her in a vulnerable position. That's how Amnon knew that he could 
that he could get through this, that he could manipulate the system to get what he wanted. This would not only leave her vulnerable, but it would have destroyed, I, I think, it's, it's fair to assume that it might have destroyed her relationship with her dad. And after he uses her, there's just that stark phrase where he says, now after he raped her, he hated her. And his hatred for her was more than the lust that was there previously. Why? Because she's now a reminder of his utter failure of a man. She's now a reminder of his weakness. She's a reminder of how twisted and perverted he's become. He can't stand the sight of her. Don't mess with sin. People are watching. Or maybe you can identify with this or there are certain behaviors or things in your own life that you can directly trace to your father or your mother and you wish they weren't there. But you just kind of in a household with all these dynamics going on, you just kind of catch some things like a cold. It just becomes the dynamic or the posture of the home, even unspoken things like anxiousness or anxiety or anger and those types of, you can feel them humming in the background. Even the best job you can do at saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and all the other things. If you've got an anxious soul, if you're anger and bitter and resentful, oh, you can feel it in the air. And kids especially, usually that's what we think about when we think of generational sin, but there's more. Look at our second case study is Tamar the Innocent. Hers is by far the most tragic story here. She doesn't inherit her father's sin, but like all the women in David's family, she's deeply caught up in it. Man, how hard would it be to be a woman in the house of David? He has a history of using them as political pawns to make alliances with other countries, to use them for his own sexual gratification, to take them when he wants them, When he uh, was married to McCall, Saul's daughter, when he was on the run, if you remember the story, Saul gave her in marriage to somebody else, and there's every indication that she was pretty happy there. When David came back, he ripped her apart from that marriage, and the husband followed them weeping along the way. David was king now. He had all the power. There's nothing that guy could do about it. McCall saw David worshiping God when he brought the ark back. And you remember, he's dancing around in the priest's garments, and she despised him. Does this give a little bit more context of why he might be despicable? You're out there worshiping God. I know who you are. Right? And what does David do? You will... You, will never, you, won't, you won't bear any more children. In other words, I, I've got lots of other options. I won't sleep with you or be intimate with you ever again. Some people think that the Lord closed her womb. I don't, I don't think so. I personally think that David said, I'm done with you. And she just lives a miserable, desolate life. And then David sees Bathsheba, takes her. And now his precious daughter, Tamar, who did not ask to be born beautiful, and she's just doing what she's told. She's just trying to, she's got all these hopes, being a virgin, and and they wore this garb back then that let everyone know that she is hoping to be married, that she's pure, that she's holding herself, that she's following the social customs of the day, hoping to have a good life. She's got all these hopes and dreams ahead of her. She's just trying to be a faithful daughter of the king and daughter in Israel. She clearly has a lot of belief in Israel. And when Amnon takes her, she says, no, my brother, for such a thing should not be done in Israel. In other words, we're God's people. This is Israel. Like, in other words, what is she saying to him? You're better than this. 
We're better than this. Sweet gal, if she has a fault, it's that she's a bad judge of character because he was not better than that. He was not better than that. He was determined to carry out his perverted desires. And she pleads with him even more, very intelligently. She's trying, you can just tell she's trying everything to loose his grip. This shouldn't be done. Where would I, think of me in this society. Where would I carry my shame? A woman that had lost her virginity outside of marriage was a pariah in that society. She would not be provided for. She would become an impoverished, desolate person, and she would also be socially ostracized from society. She would be marked, scarlet-lettered, and it did not matter whose fault it was in that society. This was the end of Tamar's dreams in life, and she pleads to his better nature if it's there, Think of me. Where, how, where will I go? And then she goes, well, maybe. She's so smart. In the moment, she's like, well, let me appeal to, to your reputation. You're the son of the king. You'll be like an outrageous fool in Israel. Everyone will look down on you, the guy that couldn't control himself with his own sister. Do you want that? And then finally, I think just out of desperation, grasping for straws, she says, hey, look, talk to the king. He'll probably okay this for marriage, even though he would not have. The Old Testament law, the Torah, is explicit against any kind of intermarriage in a family. Even half-brother and sister were not okay under the Torah to be married and to be joined together. I think she was just trying anything to get out of the room, to get out of there. And yet he overpowered her. He would not listen. He didn't care about her. He raped her and then he hated her. And he says literally, the Hebrew, by the way, I read this whole thing in Hebrew. It is way more disturbing and uncomfortable than our English translation. And one of the things I'll highlight, he says, we're gracious to say, get this woman out of here. That's how we translate it. It's not in the Hebrew. It's get this thing out of my sight. It betrays how he looked at her. She was just a thing to make himself feel good. And now she was making him feel bad. So get it out. The sad thing about sin is that innocent people, whether it be a child caught up in a war in Afghanistan or a child sold into slavery paying off family debt in the slums of India or a child that's been abused by someone that should have been safe or just sees something that they just should not have seen I mean, that's all it takes. <clears throat> Sin devastates the innocent. To say that, to say that, oh, well, it's only, as long as it only hurts me, it's, it's a joke. That's, it's, a, it's illusory. Sin always, always hurts others to some degree. And maybe you're here and you're not the Amnon, but maybe you're the Tamar. Or maybe you're both. where you've been hurt and you can't get it back. Someone took something from you that you can't exactly get back and that has shaped your story. It shaped your narrative. It shaped the way you look at life. It shaped the way you interact with others. It shaped your view of God. I say, how how could it not? And then we have Absalom, the revolutionary, Absalom is the kid, he's the kid in the household that sees the hypocrisy and is disillusioned by it and maybe keeps quiet and goes along with it and does what the family wants, but there's some event at some point that just, he says, "That's, that's it. This is a joke. Someone else got hurt. This is Prince Harry. (laughs) 
You know, he sees the behind the scenes stuff and he thinks it's all some sick joke. And at some point, kids like that declare war on the system. This is, so Absalom's the guy in the movie. He's like the Sweeney Todd. He's the guy in the movie that he's the villain, but you kind of get him at the same time. He's bad, he's mean, he's cunning, he's evil, but at the same time, there's a twinge about him where you're like, you know, I kind of, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of rooting for you. That's Absalom. He's he's mad because his beautiful sister, who he loves, was violated. This is what sets him off. He already knows what dad is like. And now he sees, so he sees not just dad, but king. This is the king of the land. I know what my dad is like. And I'll keep quiet for a bit. But now, the heir to the throne, my brother, is turning out to be just like him and worse Dad got away with it? He says, I'll, I'll be damned if I let my brother get away with it. Uh-uh. And so he plots. He waits. He connives. He makes arrangements. He waits to the right time, maybe to where Amnon thinks time has washed it all away and it's fine, we're just moving on now. Everyone's gotten over it. Maybe Amnon didn't show his face for six months to a year, and then finally. And then, of course, when Absalom sees dad get all mad and roar like a lion, but then do nothing, how disillusioned would Absalom be? And what's worse, I wonder if he can understand why God could forgive his dad. I wonder if he could understand God's forgiveness for his doubt. Have you, you know, have you, ever, have you ever thought about when an abuser comes and says, I'm sorry, but God's forgiven me and I've been forgiven. And yet, that's wonderful, that's great, but have you thought about it from the abusee's side? You know, they, what they think. They think, great, God has forgiven you from, for taking something from me that I'll never get back fantastic, good for you. You think they're happy about it? No. To them, it's bitter. They're not rejoicing at reconciliation. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for a scumbag that took something from me that I'll never get back. Fantastic. Again, you can tell I've sat across the table from a few folks. There's one young man years ago that grew up uh, in my church under my tutelage. And his parents were um, good Christians in the sense that they did everything right in terms of duty, but they lived in a passionless marriage. They wanted nothing really to do with each other, but they went through the grind day in, day out. And they made their kids do what's right. They did the homeschool thing. They put them in Sunday school, they taught them the gospel, they both mom and dad were saved at a, in the 70s through the Calvary Chapel movement, and so they wanted to do this right, and their kids all grew up, and if they all left the house, all the kids left the house, this young man had left the house, and he, he and I were in contact, and he was struggling with his faith, and then all of a sudden, his parents, out of nowhere, it's this unspoken kind of elephant in the room that mom and dad don't get along. Out of nowhere, they just announced, we're getting divorced. Oh, boy, and that was it. That was it. He said, it's been a joke this whole time. You've lied to me my entire life. This Christian, st- unbelievable. And you know, he left the faith. He's like, I'm done. And now he is, now he is violently against us. He is violently against Christianity. And so much to the point where his parents said, ooh, never mind, we'll stay married. They panicked and they went back and they, and they tried, they didn't address it. They tried to act like it just didn't happen. Like, let's just pretend that whole episode didn't happen, and it's back to business as usual, but he knows better. And every time, we'll be at get-togethers, every time they bring up, they try to tell him the gospel. They try to show him, and they try to bring it up. It's visibly from his gut, an eye roll, like, oh my gosh, like, I can't, it's, the gospel is like nails on a chalkboard for this, for this kid. 
He's an Absalom. He's seen it. Sin. Don't mess with it. As one scholar wrote, be killing sin or it be killing you. Be killing sin or it be killing you. How can God forgive someone like this, Absalom must have thought. How can he let him still be in power? How can he just let him get away with this? If this is the God of Israel, I don't want nothing to do with him. I'll take matters into my own hands. What do we do with this? I, you know, you're feeling, I can feel it in the room, we're feeling uncomfortable. That's the whole point. In fact, if I could read this to you in Hebrew, you would, and you could understand it, you would be feeling more, even more uncomfortable. It's very pointed and very precise. It's not pulling any punches in the Hebrew. In other words, this is in the Bible, I think, as a big glaring flash of warning. Warning. But there is a... These are all the kids of David. There's another child of David, another kid of David, David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, that makes these wrongs right and that offers us healing even today. How? How does the son of David, Jesus, the greater than David, address generational sin and the fallout and the abuse and all those types of things. We've got to ask that question because Jesus said all of the Bible and every character in it is pointing to me. Whether they're bad, when, when there's a bad king or a bad person, you long for someone better. It's pointing to Jesus. Or if there's a good person, it's just, it makes us think of someone even better. Reminds us of Jesus. How does Jesus speak to a guy like Amnon? Well, let me point something out to you. Did you notice, I skipped over it, but did you notice Amnon's cousin? This is David's brother's son named Jinadab. And it says there in verse three that Jinadab was a crafty man. It's actually the same. uh, Is it verse three? Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. He's a shrewd man. That's the same Hebrew word as in Genesis 3 to describe the snake in the garden. Um, And I think what this this is setting up is here we have, we have David, we have um, an Amnon. He's walking in his father's footsteps and in slithers in another voice, another narrative, a crafty and shrewd man who encourages him and finds a way for him to take what he thinks that he needs. I think the, I think the author of this is pointing Hebrew readers to, I think, I think Hebrew people would have, this would have sparked their memory. They would have known about this. Here's this person, another voice coming in. Fast forward to the son of David in the garden of Gethsemane. And there is Jesus, the son of David, who is tempted, no doubt, to fulfill his own desires. In fact, he said, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to do this. I would rather not do this. And yet Jesus, in an incredible act of self-control, says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Instead of being the son of David in the negative sense or the son of Amnon and just using his power to take, Jesus uses his power to give. In other words, where does, where does Amnon learn his behavior? From his dad, from an image that's before him. How can we be reparented then for us Amnons out there? How can we learn another way? Only through another image, only through a better example that grips your imagination more. I remember for me, I used to hang out with people where it was, it was fun and good and part of the culture to make fun of and be sarcastic and be smarter than and be an overpower others. To be the smartest person in the room or the most powerful person in the room, that was very, very good. And I remember I got caught up in all of that. I have a, a, a mentor that was very much a force to be reckoned with when he would walk into the room. And I remember I just wanted to be like him until I realized how hurt people would get from him. 
And at some point, I have a friend who was the opposite of that, and he was a quiet leader, someone who would be kind. Someone that showed that he was secure enough in himself that he didn't have to be right and he didn't have to have the last word. He didn't have to compete for the attention. He was comfortable enough in his own skin. And it provided, I still remember, I thought, I'm tired of the rat race. I'm tired of trying to impress. I'm tired of being so uncomfortable. I want to learn the secret to this guy's quiet strength. I'm not having to be up front, not having to be seen or heard, but just be comfortable in his own skin. And you know what? He had such a moral, beautiful presence to him and authority to him. It was a new image. And I remember it kind of knocked me off the course I was on. And I remember starting a new journey. And then on and on, as I began to study the way of Jesus, I realized that Jesus was like that. Jesus is like that. He wasn't someone that had to be. I'll never forget learning about him in his first miracle at this wedding. He did not have to be the center of attention. In fact, remember, he turned the water into wine and then he just faded back out. He melted back out into the background. No one knew except the disciples and the servants that Jesus had just done that. He kept the spotlight on the couple being married and he was completely fine with that. He was so secure in himself, he didn't need to show off. I thought, man, where do I get that kind of comfortability in my own skin? A new image had captured my imagination. A new way, a new father figure had come into my life. Someone that wasn't threatened by women, but that could rejoice in their strength and their intellect and their ability even beyond our, uh, a male's intellect and ability, and to celebrate that and to not have to be so insecure about it. I want that. I want that. That's what Jesus provides. How do you, how do you change? How do you reparent? How do you get a new narrative? There's no shortcut here, you guys, only by spending time with the king. Only by being with him, and I'm just going to say something really practical right now. If your relationship with Jesus and your time looking at him is only on Sunday morning with us, you're not going to change. That formula is a failed formula. Discipleship, when Jesus said, come follow me, disciple, it meant be with me, all the time. It meant study a person. It meant see me when I wake up, when I'm walking around, how I deal with people, how I deal with my family, how I do business, what I do before I go to sleep, how much I work versus how much I rest, the rituals that I do, the rhythms that I'm in. Be with me and see that and then be like that. To be with Jesus, that's what it means. Christians are disciples of a person, Jesus. And the only way you can be with Jesus is to be with him in the scripture. Read about him. Spend time with him in the word every day. If you do not read the Bible, especially the gospels, if studying Jesus, you guys, start tomorrow. Wake up earlier if you have to or take extra time at work, or do what you've got to do to saturate yourself in the person of Jesus. Christianity is not about knowing a subject. It's about knowing a person. And the, you are shaped by who you know the most, and by who you admire the most, and by who has captured your imagination the most. Hollywood knows this. This is why we're, we are controlled by narratives and images on the screen. We get our idea of what a, her uh, a hero looks like or what a person looks like by the movies we see, the billboards we look at, the magazines we read, the, the social media that we scroll through all the time, that we just intake it in. You really don't think that has an effect on how you, the narrative by what you see. It absolutely does. They're, they're banking on it, literally. They're trying to shape you. And so is Jesus, 
He's trying to shape you into his image. Why? Because his burden is easy, his yoke is light. You wanna be retrained? There's no shortcut to, you gotta be with the master. You gotta be with him. Sunday morning will not do it, friends. It's a failed model. It's helpful, but it, it cannot be the end all be all. Read it to your kids. Talk about it over dinner. Church should not just be around a stage. Church is around a table. You talk about it with your kids, with your friends. Have people over. Talk about the Lord. Ponder together what he must have been like. Imagine with your imagination what his voice was like, what he stood for. See if you can smell him. See if you can touch him. He promises that he's here as close as the air is on our skin, that he's with us and he's found right here in the Gospels. Spend time with him. What does Jesus, the son of David, have to say to the Tamars? Well, Jesus was also innocent. And Jesus had his innocence ripped away from him. Jesus was abused by powerful people. He was the victim of a corrupt trial, a miscarriage of a trial done at night under the cover of darkness because it was intended to be wrong from the start. He was abused by his friends, by the people he came to save. They took his innocence and in that they stripped him naked and shamed him on the cross. And we see pictures of Jesus with a little loincloth on. Historically, that's not true. They were naked. And the point was to shame them as they died. He was abused in every way. Jesus, the innocent victim of other people's sins. Tamar, like Tamar, he was abused by powerful men. And by experiencing her life, he can give her life back. He was resurrected and in the same way, Jesus, if you're a Tamar and you've been hurt and you've been abused, Jesus promises you not just by him taking on your suffering and taking on your abuse, he's giving you his story of resurrection that someday your innocence will be given back. Christians, we don't live for just this life. We know a day will come where we will be presented to him as a glorious, radiant, pure bride, undefiled unsullied that is our hope that someday all the should have beens in your life will be somehow and what does the cross speak to absalom's well just this you will not be able to get justice um, by fighting injustice with injustice this is a hot button for our culture right now. We live in a culture that's very angry, that violently comes against injustice. They, we live in the culture of Absaloms. Meeting violence with more violence, though, will just keep the whole process spinning, and you'll end up losing your humanity in the process. You'll end up losing your soul in the process. You'll become so jaded, so disillusioned, so cynical, so calloused, that you'll end up becoming just as guilty as the people that you've, that you've come against. We've seen this in recent, in recent memory, last few years, with rioters rioting for a just cause but end up, end up committing similar crimes to that which they are rioting against. We saw this in history in the French Revolution where the, the poor class overtook the wealthy class in France and they ended up being just as atrocious as, as the aristocrats. The long-held Christian belief that God will one day make all wrongs right, that he will judge the earth in truth and righteousness, and think of how Jesus dealt with violence in his own day. He dealt with it with nonviolence. Compare, um, just think of 
the Civil War with Abraham Lincoln, as wonderful as that was in that time of our lives, think of a hundred years later, you know, who got more done was Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, arguably. He got, you know what was, was his driving force? Was Matthew chapter five. He had learned and studied Matthew chapter five in his seminary. And he was also fascinated with Gandhi, who was also fascinated with Matthew chapter five, though he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He had learned Matthew chapter five, and he had used, Gandhi had used nonviolence to shake India free from British colonization. Dr. King used the same idea of absorbing evil and taking it innocently and yet also not being a doormat either, standing up for what's right and finding a creative response to violence. They got this from Jesus. Dr. King says this. He says in in a famous line, he says, constructive ends can never give absolute moral justification to destructive means because in the final analysis, the end is preexistent in the mean. In other words, the mean taints the end result. It's not just what you get at the end, it's the quality of what you got. Do you want a Pax Romana, like Rome, peace by force? Or you want a peace from the inside out? From example, we get this, they all got this from Jesus. Think of Nelson Mandela who went into prison in 1962, stayed a violent man, fighting apartheid with violence, sabotage. Goes in, 27 years later, comes out a follower of Jesus and ends apartheid without firing a shot. You read interviews with Mandela, it's all, he points to Jesus every time. Among other things that we can probably disagree with, but still, Jesus was an incredible influence on his life. How do we, look, if there's injustice in your life and you're angry and you're angry at God, I understand it. Gosh, I get it. I've sat across the table from so many folks that have been angry at God and I, you know, I can't say that's ridiculous and I can't say, oh, you're, 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 you're stupid and you're not getting it. No, 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 I have utmost compassion because I understand it, but listen, God is heartbroken too and he promises a day where he will make all things right. But he's the only one that can handle that kind of vengeance. He's the only one that can handle that kind of justice meeting out without losing himself. Trust him. Even when you can't understand, trust him. How do you do it? Well, I, in closing, I'd think of that old, um, that old epic movie, um, Ben-Hur, which is a revenge story. There, um, Judah, Charlton Heston's character, is betrayed by his best friend who's a Roman. And he's, the Roman does some horrible things in the name of Rome, not just to, to um, Judah, but also to his mother and his sister, sending them to a leper colony, not killing them, but wanting them to suffer. And when he finds out, it's just revenge. And he seeks out, and he's, he's this cold, hurt, callous man. And at the end of it, the the heroine in the story, the woman that he loves, she can't even be around him anymore. She's like, Judah, look, you've become just as bad as the guy that you've been, you're just as, you're, you're just as evil and just as nasty. I, I don't know you anymore. You've become a contorted, twisted person. I can't be with you anymore. And from this rejection, he finds himself going through the streets of Jerusalem the same time that Jesus is being marched through with the cross. And he's met Jesus before. When he was enslaved, he was knocked down and he was refused water, but Jesus was free at that time. There's this beautiful scene. Jesus gets water and he kneels down and he gives it to Judah, to Judah Ben-Hur, and this Roman comes up and says, hey, I said no water, and Jesus just, it's that famous scene where you just see the back of Jesus staring down the Roman's face, and the Roman, he, he, he feels the authority of Christ, and he goes, Okay, fine. You know, he lets it happen. 
Well, here's Jesus. Now he's the one that's the slave. And Judah Ben-Hur sees him and he goes, I know this man. I know him. And, he, and Jesus is carrying his cross and he falls. And Ben-Hur wants to return the favor. So he gets water and he goes to give it to Jesus. But this time the Roman knocks it out of his hand. And he says, I said no water. He can't, he can't return the favor. He has, doesn't have this. It's just beautiful imagery. And there he sees Jesus, this, the most powerful man he's ever met, even more powerful than revenge itself, let people who hate him kill him. And it changes everything. And there's the famous line at the end where he meets up with the girl that he loves again and she says, you're different. And he says, I, I saw Jesus get crucified. And this famous line, he says, he took the sword out of my hand. If you follow this four-hour movie at this point, you're just <clears throat> with a, like, they used to have intermissions. You know, that long musical segment for just forever, so you can go get popcorn or whatever it is. If you followed this long movie, you, you're feeling the revenge motif at this point. You're feeling it. And even after he kills his best friend, the hatred lives on, and you're just like, and finally when he says, he took the sword out of my hand, you can just feel Jesus solved this problem through another image, an example a, a, that gripped his mind of Here's a man with real power who can allow himself to be crucified and still be at peace. Still not hate people back. You know what comes out of someone when they're crushed. That's the real them. You know that? That's what your kids see. Maybe that's what you've seen in your parents. When they're sick or when they're hot or when they're hungry or when they're tired or when they're in debt or when they're losing their job, the stuff that ugh, comes out, it's under tremendous pressure that the gunk starts to float to the top. And our kids, they see this with this image. Maybe you've seen that in your parents and it leaves an indelible mark on your mind. What can solve that? Think of Jesus on the cross under pressure. The most cosmic pressure that's ever been put on a human being crushing Jesus on the cross and what floated to the top of him remember what floated out of him under pressure father forgive them I love them they know not what they do what else behold your mom take care of my mother behold your son He's taking care of his mom even as he's dying. What else? What else came out of Jesus? This is an image. It's meant to get your mind. It's, most, it's meant to get your imagination. This is what's going to change you. What was it? Yes, to the thief, the sinner on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The imagination, another image, is the only thing that can push this truth into the core of your heart that will really change you, will reparent you, will redeem what you've gone through, can fix the sin, can cut the chain, and stop the cycle. You guys, spend time with Jesus. Intentional, set-aside time as much as you can, and use your imagination as you do. Picture him. Talk back to him as if he's right. Picture him in your mind when you're reading. What did you mean by that parable, Lord? Read more. That's the way of following the Lord.